Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we read of your son casting out a powerful demon who was called Legion, for he was many. We pray that you would cast away the works of darkness from all of our lives, that in our lives we may have the likeness of Christ, to glorify you in wherever you have planted us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I suspect that at some point in everyone's lives here, everyone has taken a trip that, that required we travel overnight. I remember a few, but, but one of the ones I really remember was when I was working for a lab, I, I had agreed to do something in, in Los Angeles, and, and they had had me come back to Maine. And so I said, well, I, I'm happy to come back, but I, I had agreed and promised that I would be in Los Angeles this weekend. And so they flew me back to Los Angeles, and I booked a red-eye flight thinking, well, then I can work Monday morning. And my boss at the time was like, no, that's a terrible idea. Book the red-eye flight, but you're not working Monday. I was like, no, no, it'll be fine. She's like, no, you're not, not working Monday. And sure enough, I got back to where I was staying at the time, and I, I got back, and I got to where I was going. I was going to shower, and I was like, yep, she's right. I'm going to go to sleep now. <laughs> We've all had these exhausting overnight trips. We probably know roughly what it's like. And, and if you remember last week, if you were here last week, we read about the, the disciples and Jesus crossing the, the Sea of Galilee, and this storm hit them, Right? Now, the crossing should have taken about two hours, so theoretically, they might have gotten to Gerasene at like 10 at night, but, but most likely, the storm just threw everything off. And so, who knows exactly what time? It's, it's very unclear and unnecessary to really even know what time they got there, except that it would have been either really late at night, like one or two in the morning, or first thing in the morning, and of course, the disciples would be tired and groggy and like, oh, just need to rest. And... and as we visualize this, this we, we, we see them coming into this place, and probably the best analogy I could think of is it's like if any one of us were put on a plane, flew a long, long way, and ended up in Afghanistan, not, not even like someplace populated, but in some rural part of Afghanistan, we get off the plane and we're like, this, this place looks like bad news. This is a little not where I want to be right now. And then as, as you get off the plane, right, like, or, or as they're getting out of the boat, they see these cave tombs and these huge herd of pigs. And all of a sudden, if, if it's us, we get off the plane. Well, I'm not sure exactly what the cave tombs and the herd of pig would be, but it'd be something that would kind of make us give the heebie-jeebies. And all of a sudden, this man comes running at us, yelling obscenities, and, and is clearly crazy. And, and that's what the disciples are experiencing right now. We can visualize it. We can kind of feel the discomfort. But it, but it becomes more than discomfort, right? The scene is already set that this is going to be an uncomfortable or worse situation. The scene is already set that there's sort of this darkness hanging over the disciples and Jesus as they come into this land, or a darkness hanging over the land. And so as we move through the passage... The, the focus shifts to the unclean man. And, and modernity kind of tries to, to say, well, when, when we see these demons cast out, it's really Jesus is kind of healing mental illness. But the text doesn't allow us to read it that way. There's a little bit of 
mental illness we'll get to in a moment. But, but the text really doesn't allow us to read it as strictly mental illness. But rather, Jesus is facing a man who has, in fact, been overcome by evil spirits. And even though we don't, don't face demons in the same way that Jesus did in Scripture, they, they still exist. And I think part of the reason, you know, you, you read stories in like Africa and South America, and, and certainly there's, there's wild things that missionaries report that, that are nothing like what we experience here. And, and part of that is because evil is, is already acceptable. It doesn't really take a lot of work to find something evil and to partake in something evil in our culture. Just turn on the TV or go on the internet. And, anyway, don't do that. Because there's plenty of things that Satan has allowed, has just stepped out of the way to, to, to come and wreak destruction. But this man is experiencing the cruelty of these demons. They're destroying his inside. And then, because they didn't have any way of dealing with it, they, they chain him up. And they try and lock him up, and he breaks that out. But even... even if the demons are strong enough that he can break away the chains, right, as it's described, imagine the physical pain that that man would be experiencing. So he's being destroyed from within and from the outside. And before we meet the demon and realize how incredibly strong and dark this demon is, we, we, we already know how powerful he is just because of the breaking of the chains. It continues on, Night and day this man was among the tombs and on the mountains, and he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. The Talmud, which, which was a guide or is a guide for the daily lives of the Jewish people, gives four characteristics for what madness is. Walking about at night, spending the night on a grave, tearing one's clothing, and destroying what has been given to him. So like I said, there is an element of which this man has gone mad because of these demons. He's, he's just gone crazy because of what these demons are doing to him. But there's another interesting detail in this fifth verse, which, which <clears throat> echoes 1 Kings 12, 8, or 18, 28. I don't know where 12 came from there. 18, 28. And if you haven't read... 1 Kings 18, it's a fascinating piece where Elijah kind of lays down the gauntlet and challenges these pagans, tons, a whole bunch of pagan priests, to, to a sacrifice off, if you will. It's like, well, we're going to see whose God is better. Whichever God lights the sacrifice on fire, that's, that's the real God. And so, so during this scene, Elijah's dancing around and taunting them. And one of the things that the pagan priests do is they cry and cut themselves as they're trying to get their God to act. The implication of this echo that happens here is that not only has this man gone mad, but that he's worshiping probably the demon within him. He's tumbled so far down. He's offering his body to the demon in worship. But then there's an interlude of hope, a little light, in this darkness. As the possessed man runs towards Jesus, he falls before him. 
The demons may not have wanted to recognize Jesus' superiority to them. And in fact, in using Jesus' name, they're trying to gain power over him. But, But they know who he is, and they know they have no power over him, and so they must fall before him. It's a word that means something like reverence, something like worshiping him, but obviously he's, they're not worshiping Jesus. But they are giving the reverence that he is due. Because while the demons have rebelled against God, they, they have no power against him. While the demons have fought against God and seek to destroy everything that they can, they have no power that God does not allow them to have. And of course, the classic example of this is the beginning of the book of Job, where Satan walks into the heavenly courtroom and challenges God and says, well, what about Job? And if it wasn't for God allowing Satan to tempt Job, Job would have just been left alone. But God knew that in the end, he would be glorified through this temptation and that Job would stay faithful. And so the only reason Satan is able to tempt Job is because God allowed it. And likewise, these demons know that Jesus has already won the day. And another interesting thing happens here. As the, as the demons come running towards him, they call Jesus Son of the Most High God. And this term, Most High God, is, is, is an interesting one, because in the Old Testament, the only time it ever really seems to be used, it's used a couple other places, but most often it's when they compare Yahweh to the pagan gods, and it's to show that Yahweh is higher than all other gods. And so Jesus comes as one who is stronger than this incredible darkness that has overcome this man, that one who has come as one who is stronger than these demons, as a light of hope. The demons desperately want to reject Jesus, to rebel against his command. And we learn that Jesus has been commanding them to come out. And, and as we read this, the first, the first thing we read, we might be tempting to think, well, oh, maybe Jesus isn't strong enough to cast them out. Maybe, maybe they... they this claim that Jesus is so strong that they can't resist his power isn't a fair analysis. But if we read this a little carefully, a little more carefully, we we, we realize what's happening here is they already know that they have lost. They already know that they're going to be cast out, but they don't want to be tormented yet. They even know that one day judgment will come upon them, as we read later in Revelation but they don't want that just yet. And so what they're doing is holding on and begging not to be tormented just yet. And so the first part of the rising action of this narrative ends with this overwhelming sense of evil. And I know that that talking about evil can be really, really uncomfortable. Thinking about evil can be really uncomfortable. But we have to wade through this discomfort to get to the good news, because because good news is coming in just a minute. Because the demons had no choice. When he says, remember, they're trying to rule over Jesus by recognizing him and using his name as sort of like this magical ruling over of Jesus. But Jesus says, well, what is your name? 
And because he's God, they have no choice but to say, our name is Legion, for we are many. And now Jesus has all the power, all the authority to cast them out. Now, a legion in, in the Roman times, and that's what that word is, is drawing from, would have been about 6,000 men. And, and we don't need to read this as there's 6,000 demons in this man. Maybe, man, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. What, what, the point of, of calling himself legion is to say there are many, many, many of us. It doesn't really matter if that's 100 or 6,000. It just means that there are power, there's a lot, and it's a dark, dark thing. We are meant to get to the point of the story and be totally overwhelmed by this sense of darkness and dread. The darkness that this man is facing. The uncleanness of this situation. The mental madness that has overcome this man. The spiritual darkness that is killing him from the inside out. The incredible and overwhelming force of this demon. And in a worldly sense, it's hopeless. In a worldly sense, there is no hope. But Jesus has the authority to cleanse. And so the demons beg him to send them into this herd of pig, and Jesus does, does this, and by doing this, he does two things. First, he cleanses the man. He sends the demons out of this man, and he is a changed man, as we'll see in just a moment. But he does something else, right? If, if you remember back to the rabbinic law and to the Old Testament and Leviticus, pigs were rather dirty, armed, dirty animals. And he cleanses the countryside as well. This is not insignificant that he sends the pigs off to cleanse the countryside because what will come later is all of a sudden, all of these Gentiles will hear what Jesus did for this man and, and this is the punchline, and I'm giving it away, but I think that this is so important that I don't mind giving away the punchline a little bit. By cleansing the land as well, all these Gentiles are going to do what Jesus' own people failed to do and give glory to God and be astonished by the working of Jesus. That's amazing. Anyway, getting back to the text... I think one of the things as we read this, it can be a little disturbing, right? Like we, we, we see this, this huge herd. It's going to feed tons of people. And this is the, the herds, herdsman's livelihood. And all of a sudden it's gone and washed away. And, and we can think of the ethical and economical consequences of that and find it really disturbing. But that other punchline beyond just cleansing the land is it shows us something about the incredible value of human life. This man's life, who up until just a moment ago seemed like a hopeless case, is worth more than 2,000 pigs. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's how much you are worth to God. You're worth more than that, incidentally, but you are worth so much to God. <clears throat> And, and as we read about this exorcism, there's, there's another interesting thing that happens here. We, we found, the scholars have found a few exorcism rites from, you know, within a few hundred years 
of this one. And one of them starts with instructions. And it says, take oil of an unripe olive, together with the herbs of mastigia and the fruit pulp of lotus, and boil them with colorful, colorful marjoram. And then it goes on with like a two-page um, thing that you say, appealing to several false gods, including Jesus and the God of the Hebrews and a whole bunch of others, in hopes that this demon might leave the person. But you notice what Jesus said. He just tells the demons to get out of here, and they go. And, and that drives home the reality of Jesus' authority. It drives home the reality of who Jesus is, that he is God and can alone drive away these demons. And this is kind of like a false peak of the story. It pops and there's this new reality. This man who was once possessed is given this new life, this new hope. And they came, assuming, I believe it's the herdsmen came to Jesus as well as some local people, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the, the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. The man is of sound mind and clothed. And this idea of being clothed is more than just like, oh, he's got it together now. But it seems as though Jesus has adopted him as his own. To be clothed was part of an adoption right to bring somebody in to the fold. He gave him new clothes to belong to him. So not, no, not only is this man freed, he now belongs to Jesus. He's adopted as a child of God. My friends, sin is a very dark thing. And there's lots of evil in this world. It, it doesn't take much to figure this out. Sin can often overcome us. This is why we confess our sins week in and week out and are reminded that Jesus has forgiven us for our sins. <clears throat> in a lot of ways, even though I assume none of us were demon-possessed at any point, but I've, I've been wrong before. In a lot of ways, though, we're like this demon-possessed at one point, overcome by the darkness of sin. And then Jesus washes that away with his blood, makes us his, and makes us new men and new women. Christ has set you free, and not only set you free from your sin, but he has made you his. And if you're here this morning struggling with sin or darkness or, or wandered far from Jesus, know that he will bring you back. Because sin can feel overwhelming and like there's no hope. And probably there's no worldly hope outside of Christ. Life can feel overwhelming and exhausting. But Christ has the power to set you free. And then the pig herders and the local people were afraid. And rightly so, because something powerful had happened. They'd all seen this crazed man wandering around, yelling obscenities, screaming at them, unable to be restrained. And now he's sitting there having crumpets with Jesus and, and having a lovely little chat. It's a head-over-heels change of who he is. They have seen an incredible force, 
A powerful light has come into their territory. And it's terrifying. All they know is that something divine has visited them. And they don't want that kind of power wandering around. So they beg him to leave. And likewise, the former possessed man begs Jesus to take him with him as he prepares to go. And this makes sense, right? You have this horrible history. You did something terrible. You're really embarrassed of it. So you just want to go to a different place where nobody knows about that. And Jesus says no. Instead, Jesus commissions him. Jesus says to him, go to your home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Jesus completed his work in this man. He has nothing to fear anymore. He belongs to Jesus. And so he commissions this man with that beautiful commission and sends him home. And the man goes, and the man preaches, and everyone marveled. What happens here is amazing. Because of this man, because he was changed, God is glorified in the dark country of the Gentiles. God is glorified and made known. Have you been set free? from sin and darkness. Do you know what God in Christ has not that God in Christ has not only freed you, but he has given you the power to be protected from all darkness, all sin and all evil in this world. If so go now, proclaim what God has done for you. Not to be a braggart, not to say, look at who I am now because of I'm great, but so that God might be glorified in your whole sphere of influence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.